We have quite a long reading this morning for the sermon passage. I encourage us to stay uh, seated. I'm going to read from verse uh, 39 of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel all the way to through uh, verse 80. And we'll begin reading it as the uh, choir and the musicians leave. Um, and what we have here in this story is really three songs or three shouts. There's something to shout about. And we'll look, um, not, I hope, superficially, but uh, we'll give an overview of these uh, three songs and how they show us the credibility of Christmas. So we'll uh, be uh, reading from verse 39 of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. So let's then hear God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has broken down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord has shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Son shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word. Well, obviously, it's a long uh, section, but it has one central theme to it that I want to at least introduce us to this morning. And that theme is all about desire, desire, what we truly want, what our real uh, what we, the, 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 the greatest fulfillment of our desires could be. We all have desires, things we want, things we desire, things we want to achieve, things we want to experience. Where is the locus? What is the place where those true desires will be fulfilled? What is the real location for the fulfillment of the desires? This passage has throughout it this theme of the fulfillment of desires, something to shout about. We have these three exclamations these three magnifications, these three amplifications of the fulfillment of true desire. What is it that you really desire? What do you actually want and where will that fulfillment for those desires be accomplished? And what these three songs, there are three of them here in this passage, are saying is actually the fulfillment of all the desires that we have is in one place and one place alone. And those, uh, uh, the fulfillment of those desires is, is broken up into three different categories here, the personal, the social, and then the ecclesial, the church. Personal, it's showing us that the fulfillment of true desires is, it, is, is, of true desires for true happiness is found in Christmas. And this is what gives us the credibility for Christmas. Usually when people talk about, can you believe Christmas? They give you something of a rational argument based upon the omnipotence of God. That is, of course we can believe in the incarnation because God is all powerful and therefore he can do something like an incarnation. And that's a perfectly good argument. The other standard approach to the, um, to the credibility of the Christmas story in the incarnation is to make a textual argument, to look at the scriptures and see how the scriptures themselves teach the incarnation. And therefore, if we follow the Bible and its authority, we should accept the incarnation. Both of those are obviously good arguments, but there is a third argument that, as I say, is the burden of this passage, namely that the fulfillment of all the true desires for which we are truly made by God, is found at Christmas. That all our desires, all the things that we really want, is found at Christmas. All the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the hopes and all the fears, because it's an awesome opportunity, are met in thee tonight. What is it that you truly desire? And where will that desire be discovered, found, realized. And what these songs, these exclamations, these shouts are saying is that ultimately and truly it's found both personally, socially, and ecclesially, that is in the church, personal, social, and ecclesial. 
it's found Christmas. Let's look at these uh, three songs together. First of all, of course, we have Elizabeth's exclamation. It really is a shout, this one. Uh, verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry. That is, she shouted. What did she say? Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, the mother of my Lord, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Let's just pause there for a moment. It's not part of the main theme of this passage, but it's an important observation. John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb, leapt for joy at the greeting of the mother of Jesus. John the Baptist's whole ministry, as we'll see at the moment in Zechariah's song, is to point to Jesus. And John the Baptist did that in utero, in the womb. Not only is that remarkable, and it must have been an amazing experience for Elizabeth to Obviously, I've never, this will not be a surprise to you, but I've never been a mother. But I'm told by those who know better than I do that you can feel things and that you notice that you, you, you obviously you notice, and there's a baby inside, and to leap for joy at the greeting of Mary. It must have been an astonishing experience. But not only that, and as I say, it's not the burden of the passage, which is our desires, but it's an important observation and application. In utero, in the womb, John the Baptist prophesied, leapt for joy, responded to the greeting of the mother of Jesus. And therefore, of course, it's a biblical support for the life of the unborn, isn't it? He's not a mere bundle of cells. He's a person. He's a prophet in the womb. Amazing. But the burden, I say, of the passage is about our desires, and particularly this first one, personal. That is, true desire for true happiness. And I'm using that as a somewhat simple but I think effective way of translating what the Bible means by blessed. Blessed is what Elizabeth is shouting about. Blessed are you. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 45, picking up again. Blessed is she. Blessed. To be blessed in the Bible is not a mere random religious piece of jargon. You know, bless you, bless you. It it, it has substance to it. What it is saying is this is the highest good. That's why we bless God. Often translated praise God. What we're saying is he is the highest good. And therefore he is to be praised. And when God blesses us, what we're saying, what we're saying is that we, when we're in the blessed state, we are living the life that God declares is the best life. It's the good life. It's the right path. Now, that does not mean that we don't experience sufferings and difficulties. How could it mean that? We live in a fallen world. To be blessed does not mean that our sorrows are evacuated from us, but it does mean that even our sufferings are, if I may use this word, impregnated with joy. Even our sufferings. Because now our life has meaning and purpose and significance. For we know that we are living the life that the ancients called the summum bonum, the highest good. We have discovered it. And what 
Elizabeth is saying is that is revealed to us that true happiness at Christmas. The blessed life. And uh, in particular, she puts a, uh, a point on it by describing the kind of blessed life in verse 45. Blessed is she who, what? Believed that there would be, note the fulfillment, the fulfillment of all the desires. There would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So what is the blessed life? It is to trust and obey, to not only hear God's word, but to believe it and to put it into practice. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy or blessed in Jesus. Personally, Christmas is the place where our deepest desires, if we respond with trust and faith and therefore obedience to God, where our deepest desires are discovered and realized and experienced. Personally, our deepest desires for true happiness if we trust and obey. Listen, you can attempt to mitigate you the aggravations of your life through experimental drugs or extensive entertainment or through achievement in career or sports. But at the end of the day, when the buzz has dissipated and when the show has ended and when the applause for whatever achievement you manage uh, to accomplish has died down, if you've put your hope for happiness in those things, it will be like ashes in your mouth. Because the summum bonum, the highest good, the blessed life is revealed, Elizabeth is saying, at Christmas. That is, of course, in the Christ child and faith in him and obedience to his word. If you want to be happy, Truly happy. That doesn't mean that you won't suffer and won't have pain on sorrows, but it means that in the midst of those, alongside those, all through those, you will know that you have chosen the path of blessing, of true meaning and significance. Well, there's a a second deepest desire that has been accomplished here, not only that personal desire for personal true happiness, but a social desire. And this is, I think, the burden, the emphasis of what Mary is singing about in her famous Magnificat or uh, the, uh, the song which begins, My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat is just the Latin for the first word in the Latin translation. My soul magnifies the Lord. It runs from verse 46 through to uh, verse 55. Mary is now responding to Elizabeth's exclamation about blessing and she's then describing what it is that makes her so blessed to discover this happy life and she moves from that state of personal experience to looking at how God is going to put the rights put the wrongs right Uh, it's a social a a communal um, shift Look at what she says my my soul magnifies the Lord my spirit rejoices in God my savior why Verse 48, he's looked on the humble state of his servant. And what's going to happen to the humble state? He is going to lift them up. Verse 52, he is exalted 
those of humble estate. Whereas, verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Or look at it in summary, verse 53. He has filled who? The hungry were good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. And what is this? This is in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring or his seed forever. It is fulfillment of these deep desires of God's people. That there will come a day when someone will put the wrongs right. And what Mary is saying is that person is the person that I'm carrying in my womb, that God, my Savior. He's going to lift up the humble. He's going to fill the hungry and scatter the proud. Today, there's a a great desire in all sorts of different circles for a kind of revolution, a change in our social structures. Surely we've all picked this up. There was all the fashion for occupying Wall Street some years ago, and there are various um, movements that attempt at either end of the political spectrum to to change things fundamentally and overturn what is to 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 retake the country and to to shift everything, but fundamentally, essentially, that desire to put wrong things right is only found in God, our Savior. And your desires, our desires for righteousness and justice to be established can only be found in the message of Christmas. It is a real revolution. Do you notice how Mary described the shift? The humble, exalted. The proud, scattered. The hungry, filled. The rich, empty. Of course, this is a spiritual change that must take place. We don't have time to trace all the language that Mary is using here, drawn from uh, most famously from Hannah's song in the Old Testament. But there's deep background to all this. And what is being said here is that those who recognize that they are sinners will be saved. But those who are proud in their own righteousness will be scattered. And it is that message, counterintuitive, a real spiritual revolution that must penetrate our churches and our societies for the wrongs to be put right. Long ago, there was a uh, not that well-known hymn writer called Henry Scott Holland who was uh, for a while canon of St. Paul's Cathedral and then went off to Oxford University to... Uh, I think he was professor of divinity there. But anyway, he, he, not everything he wrote or said do I by any means agree with, but he has one verse and one hymn about this that I think is quite insightful. 
he says, uh, he, he, he says, crown, O Lord, thine own endeavor. Cleave thy, our darkness with your light. Uh, feel, fill the faint and hungry with the, riches, the richness of thy word. The faint and hungry, he describes, from all nations, fill them with the richness of thy word. Cleanse, he wrote in this hymn, the body of this nation. Yes, we can pray for our nation, of course. Cleanse the body of this nation. But with what? Holland says, with the gospel of the Lord. Our desire for a real shift spiritually where the wrongs are put right is found in no other place than Christmas. In other words, those who want social revolution, of which there are many today, have it entirely wrong. A social revolution just shifts who the bullies are and who is the dictator. You change one group of dictators for another group. What we need is a heart revolution to be saved. A mind and heart renewal. The way then is the way of the baby. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And all that is shown to us at Christmas. How did God come to the world? In a baby. How remarkable. And yet he comes to us. And if we're humble and receptive, he'll meet us. And give us renewed hope and vigor. Well, talking of renewed hope and vigor, we come to the last of these uh, three songs or exclamations or shouts uh, that uh, describe the desires that are fulfilled at Christmas. Our deepest desires, our sanctified longings are fulfilled in the Christmas story. And this is Zachariah's uh, prophecy. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he, he names the name of his child as John in obedience to what the angel has, has told already. And then his tongue is immediately loosed he, and he opens his mouth. And as soon as he can open his mouth, he blesses God. What a great example. When God intervenes in your life, then let the first thing we do be to thank God, which is what exactly Zachariah did and then we're told the substance of his thanksgiving I'm sure he took some time afterwards to write it down and get it exact and clear and this is what we have from verses 67 to 79 and the heart of this prophetic exclamation of joy from Zachariah is what he calls a visit look at verse 68 blessed be the God of Israel why for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then again at the end, he structured this around a classic bit of Old Testament poetry where there's a top and a tail to it, what's called an inclusio to indicate the structure. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit 
us from on high. Zechariah, being an Old Testament priest, knew full well that this language of visitation was of great substance and significance. It is the language of revival. That's the kind of terminology we would use. So where will revival come to the church? Remember, it's personal, social, and ecclesial. Personal, true happiness, social. The wrongs being put right through the baby in the manger. And now we have the church, God's people. Where will revival come from? Where will God step in and visit us, using Old Testament language, show up in power in his uh, in, 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 his, uh, in his presence and through his word and by his spirit. And what Zechariah is saying is the ultimate revival. We've had true happiness, uh, personal. Uh, we've, we, we've had the real revolution, <laughs> social, that is the power of the gospel to change our hearts that then impacts everything around us. And now we have uh, this uh, final ecclesial aspect, uh, which is the ultimate revival. He visits us. What Zachariah is saying is these Old Testament visitations, when from time to time God showed up in power and did something amazing, have all been pointed to this ultimate revival that's going to happen where? At Christmas. In the incarnation, life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Christ of Christmas. Uh, Luke uh, traces this theme uh, uh, through his gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 7, when Jesus has raised someone from the dead, the people respond, God has surely visited us. How truly they spoke beyond what they realized. For God in Jesus was there. And then the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus in sorrow looks out over the church, over Jerusalem, his people, he says to them, you did not recognize the time of what? Your visitation. God was here, he says to Jerusalem, and you missed it. Zachariah is saying that uh, Christmas, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, is the locus of ultimate revival. And that message of Christmas is the way that the church is to be revived through the gospel of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that he would visit us. There was a stage in my life when I spent quite a lot of time studying uh, revivals, and I read all sorts of different books and went to various places that were claiming revivals and observed them. One story of a revival that I've come across a little more recently is of John Wesley, the great Methodist preacher, who was preaching in Wales. And as he was preaching in Wales, uh, the, uh, the people that he was preaching to got really very excited about what he was saying. Uh, they began to literally jump up and down in excitement. And Wesley, who was an Oxford professor and was not only that, was also English, 
Uh, and, and theologically, he had a concern that things would not get out of hand in his revival meetings because then it would appear to others that all that was happening was mere emotionalism rather than actual spiritual work. Uh, Wesley, as he saw the, the Welsh people he was preaching to begin to jump up and down in excitement, actually rebuked them. He told them to be quiet and calm down. The story, go, excuse me, the story goes that Hal Harris, who was a Welsh revival preacher, was also in uh, the audience at that time. And Hal Harris, it is said, came up to Wesley and told him that he was preaching to the Welsh and he should expect a little more emotion than when he was speaking to the English. And it is said that Hal Harris, no doubt with a twinkle in his eye, said to uh, Wesley, better Welsh jumpers than English sleepers. Well, here we have the ultimate revival, a visit that is, if not physically to make us jump up and down, it is giving us something to shout about. Why? We're told because it gives us the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins, verse 77, and then verse 79, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, that is, certainty about life after death. So at Christmas, if you trust and obey, you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and you're going to spend eternity in joy with your Savior. You no longer live in the shadow of death. And that isn't something to shout about. I don't know what is. So we have personal, social, and ecclesial. Personal, true happiness. Uh, Social, uh, the real revolution, that is the change of the heart that leads to a change of action. And then ecclesial, the ultimate revival that comes through the message of the gospel if we receive it. I discovered um, uh, the other day that um, the most streamed Christmas music video of all time is a song by Mariah Carey called All I Want uh, for Christmas is You. You may have heard it. I presume most of you have. It's a, it's a good, you know, it's a catchy tune, nothing, you know, it's, but, it, but it's interesting to me as I've been thinking about that, that actually the words in Mar- Mariah Carey's song have it absolutely the wrong way around. It's talking about desires, what we want, but it's placing the locus of those desires in absolutely the wrong place. I don't just mean obviously the romantic tone of it, but what it's saying is, all I want for Christmas is you. In other words, Christmas is not the locus of the fulfillment of our desires. It's something else. It's absolutely and completely the wrong way round. And if I was writing lyrics for Mariah Carey, which you'll be glad to know I am not, I would suggest instead it should be All I want for you is Christmas. Because then that is everything. 
And it is certainly, certainly something to shout about. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you for your word. We pray that it would be powerfully at work in us uh, for your glory. Uh, we pray, Lord, that this season we would remember the personal, social, and ecclesial desires that we have are fulfilled and met at no, in no other place other than Christmas. That all the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Thee. So help us, help us, Lord, to put our desires, to find our desires in You and You alone. We pray it in Jesus' name.